Across the country, the community composting movement is growing. Small-scale composting provides communities immediate opportunities for reducing waste, improving local soil, creating jobs, and fighting climate change. You're listening to the Composting for Community podcast, where we'll bring you stories from the people doing this work on the ground and in the soil. I'm Brenda Platt, the director of ILSR's Composting for Community initiative. Today I'm joined by Michael Bradley, president of Earth Appliance Organics in Providence, Rhode Island. Michael launched the Community Compost Depot at Fry Gardens, a community compost site that has put in place new safety protocols in order to continue collecting and composting food scraps during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Michael. Hi, how are you, Brenda? Great, glad to have you with us. Before we hear how about how you're navigating composting in the time of COVID-19, tell us a little bit about Earth Appliance Organics and how you started the community compost depot you created at Fry Gardens. Sure, uh, Earth Appliance Organics is a design build firm and we focus on community scale compost systems, at designing uh, customized units, installation, and we also run a compost facility. Uh, and then we are hoping this year to sell compost. A, an offshoot of that, which developed uh, organically actually uh, after interacting with the community, and there was a significant amount of you know I, I outreach, people coming to us with questions, students wanting to engage in projects. We realized that there was a need for that outreach education training. And so we developed the community compost depot. And we, at the same time, we're developing our collection sites and our main collection site is at Fry Gardens, which is next to Fry Florist and Greenhouse in Providence. And so we decided to actually develop that into its own separate entity, which would be the, hopefully a nonprofit, we applied for registration and we'll use that as our community engagement, outreach education, training. That's one of our main drop-off sites, so that's where we engage with the community. Great. And what are you collecting at your drop-off site? And how is the how many participants do you have from the community? So we collect mainly food scraps. Uh, we, or of course, include acceptable compostable items that might be generated in in home composting, residential. We also uh, have some clients that are small cafe style commercial operations, but essentially we collect food scraps from the community and we collect the con- the complement of that leaves and brush as well. And then uh, those are transferred to the compost facility and composted right on site there. Presently, we have about 135 family registered families we re- we estimate to be about 350 individual residents of the providence and greater providence area that participate in the program and then we have a number of informal people that uh, find our site and drop off their food scraps when they can our site is a uh, self-serve and it's open 24 7 so it does have access off-street access Uh, so that anyone can walk up to the site and drop off their food scraps. Right. So before we pivot to how you're navigating uh, your food collection program uh, during this COVID-19 
pandemic. Just yep. want to hear a little bit more about the actual, I know you mentioned you do some of the composting on site and that's right. There's no, there's no one way to compost. So many different ways and sizes and systems. How are you doing it at Fry Gardens? Yeah, so part of our initiative is to create innovations to maximize composting on site and ensure that all compostable materials that might be generated in uh, a residential or a neighborhood can be composted. So we wanted to have a system that we could ensure would compost meat scraps, any of those, you know, traditionally what are considered hard or high risk items such as oils, dairy, you know, greasy leftovers, things like that. So I've been involved in composting essentially since I was very young and have created a number of my own personal composters over the years. And the style that I found that seemed to be most effective in ensuring that you get the temperatures up, you can maintain those temperatures, was an enclosed vessel uh, forced aeration system. So rather than buying a extremely expensive automated system, we decided to, uh, my background is as a scientist and engineer, and so what I decided to do was look at each of those aspects and try to find the best way to create uh, a forced aeration system that would be sufficient and could be uh, run affordable in a, either a backyard setting or a community garden setting. And so I developed a fairly simple forced aeration systems. And that seems to be sufficient to really ensure that, you know, we're getting those temperatures up, we're minimizing any risk associated with pathogens, and that we can run consistently all year round. Great. I love to hear about do-it-yourself systems in composting. And it's interesting, I don't actually know many community compost sites at, you know, community gardens and the like that are handling meat and grease and, you know, as you right. said, some of those materials that a lot of locally based sites don't want. So interesting True. that you're taking all that. And so what do you what do you do with the compost once it's done? Where does that go? Well, so this the project has been under development for a number of years. So each year that we would uh, produce compost, we would then use them in our gardens. And so we would certainly consume, historically, we consumed all of that compost on the site in the community garden, as well as uh, sharing that compost with our host, which uh, Richard Espute of Fry Florist and Greenhouse has basically offered an area of his uh, community garden to us to run the compost depot. And so we share a significant portion of that compost for uh, the use in the greenhouse. Most of it goes into the potted plants. We also use them for, you know, any of promotions that are, that are done within the greenhouse. And this year we'll have a surplus and we're hoping to get some compost sales going this spring. Awesome. I love that you're supporting a local business. And I know that the Rhode Island, um, is it the Department of Environmental Management, you know, has regulations governing composting. That's and, correct. And they have a three-tiered system that accommodates community composting. Did the state regs help you to get, per did you get permitted in Rhode Island? And how so, did the state regs help you? Yeah. The, historically, the, the, the way the regulations were written, and um, this is, doesn't mean this is how they were would be enforced, but they were essentially 
it was binary. There was either a backyard composting system or large commercial facilities. And if you were a neighborhood that, say, wanted to collect compost for your community garden from 10, 20 of your neighbors, well, you'd have to register it as, as a large compost facility. Um, and of course, that's that was in theory, that wasn't, the, the city and the state has really worked well with, with us in the development of community-based composting, but the stakeholders involved knew that the laws as written did not support that. And with that ambiguity, we didn't feel that we had the right structure in order to develop and promote this as a viable alternative. So back in about 2014, me along with a, a number of stakeholders, we looked over the regulations and gave suggestions for developing a tiered system, which there would be a small, medium, and a large distinction. And that would allow entry for those smaller size without having to put in the expensive engineering uh, systems that might be required. There was a lot of assessment on, and um, gleaning from other states that put in initiatives to ensure that we were creating the right type of structure and not increasing risk. And we settled on the three-tier system that's currently in place. And it is absolutely because of that three-tier system that allows us to enter into being a full-fledged facility and being registered as a facility, uh, which of course allows us to collect the, the type of materials that uh, you know can only be composted at the facility, which is those high risk or you know hard to compost materials like meat scraps, grease, dairy, things like that. Uh, we felt it was important to ensure that we could compost those uh, to create a system that would facilitate home collections, allow it to be uh, simplified. We didn't want there to be ambiguity where people really weren't sure what they could collect and couldn't collect and and we defaulted to saying we need to collect everything if it's organic and it's clean we can compost it and that simplified how we could communicate our system to other people and we feel that that's worked and certainly having that registration with the DEM you know gives us backing and support for operating that way yeah, yeah, that's great that the you not only worked on the regs but and helped them get them in place, but they're also helped you to get you know launch the site and do what you're doing. That's correct. Um, so let's let's pivot now to the onset of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Many community drop off sites, you know, collecting food scraps have closed due to concerns about exposing workers, volunteers, participants. You know, uh, in New York City, we're the epicenter of the of the pandemic is happening, you know, most of them have closed, not all of them. You've stayed open. Run us yes. through your decision-making process and and then, you know, and the protocols you've put in place. Was it a difficult decision? What did you do? How did you make that decision? Yeah, well, it certainly was something that we needed to assess. And, you know, fortunately, my background allows me to feel confident that I could do a risk assessment and decide whether it was okay to remain open or if we needed to close down, modify operations or shut down completely. Now, I come from the chemical industry. I think you might've mentioned that. And in that industry, 
we are always evaluating as we're handling either chemical or biological agents, uh, handling practices. And we start with a risk assessment and that evaluates both the hazard of the material, the familiarity with the type of risk, whether it's a physical, chemical, biological, the nature of it, and how can you control it? What measures can you take to minimize exposure? And so we, we walked through those, the risk assessment, risk evaluation, and we did a lot of looking through the trusted literature. I mean, sure, we went to WHO, CDC, the EPA, any of the authoritative websites to really know that we're, the infectious agent that we're dealing with is something that could be controlled against. And we did come to the conclusion that we, we could put in provisions to ensure safe access and minimize risk. We can never eliminate risk, but we can set up a situation that we can try to guard against any sort of uh, spreading of potential contamination or cross-contamination or exposure of, of our uh, members to uh, potential infectious agents. And of course, it all comes down to cleaning. You're right. It all comes down to, to cleaning. I, you know, I, I didn't right. actually mention your 30-year history, but and that it is 30 okay. years in this other, you know, uh, profession with the chemical industry, and you know, that you were That's able right. to bring that expertise over three decades to this one to this decision you had to make. It's it's. Um, yeah. You know, we can all benefit from your expertise and what you did. Run us through now what those you know, protocols on. We didn't actually do like, you know, explaining the, the drop off. You know, people come in, right. they drop off, have to lift, lift a lid. So explain, That's you know, correct. really step yep. by step what what your, um, what the new protocols are. Sure. Okay. So what we first, after, I, I should say that I believe it was your the first webinar that you did with the U.S. Composting Council. Um, and one of the, your guests was was pretty thorough in understanding of infectious agents, how they can spread through touch points, things like that. Uh, so that's an important resource. Um, and then, you know, having the background as uh, the chemist, we went through a similar type of understanding, okay, people are accessing these bins, which means they're touching the lid. They, they need to lift that lid. They need to add their food scraps, close the lid. We also have a place where they can pick up fiber so there's another area of handling. So we initially put in signage. Signage helps and is important. And we also sent out emails to every one of our members and asked them to respond that they at least had a cursory understanding it, that this is what we were doing going forward. And then where we could, we tried to create some hands-off or less handling features. So our leaf disposal, we were able to create it so the the lid is off of it and you simply need to sort of rake out a little bit of leaves so you don't have to handle the the lid there but that was hard to do because with for the food scraps because you you always want to ensure you put the lid back down and so we we couldn't eliminate all touch points so we decided to use sanitizer as part of the pr protocol so we have a couple sanitizer bottles that are there we set up a number of steps that a user would follow in approaching the depot, you know, following the 
safe distance guidelines in case there's anyone else at the depot, but once they're engaging with the depot, there are ways in which they can sanitize the area, they can sanitize their hands, uh, they can drop off their food scraps and do the reverse. We do emphasize the don't touch your face, the um, you ensure you have clean hands, you know, sanitize your hands before and after, and of course go home and wash your hands. And each of these pieces, once we put in place, we did a dry run through with a small number of participants in which we often test drive. And so uh, one of them happens to be a, uh, one of our depot members also happens to work at DEM. And of course they unofficially said, it sounds sound. Um, you're taking them as much precautions as you can. And we were trying to minimize any sort of cross-contamination or accumulation of an area that could be a potential site, you know, vector site. And we did that by putting in that the depot itself is cleaned three times a day. So in the morning, afternoon, and night, we go through and wash any of the bins or areas that might be touched. So, you know, running through the risk assessment, you you would first try to create structural changes such as a barrier or hands-free. Then you can create changes to how the layout is, how things flow through, so you don't cross-contaminate. And the, the neutralizing and uh, sanitizing methods, of course, since it's outside, sanitizer is important, but also soap and water is a very powerful agent there. And then to um, get into the last line of defense, that's your personal protective equipment. So we also recommended that people put on gloves, don gloves. And of course, in Rhode Island, we have a, an order to put on face masks when we're outside in the public. And so uh, we communicated that. And we also emphasized that the users to remember that PPE is actually your last line of defense, not your first line. Your first line of defense is your distancing, your, your barriers, your engineering. So your, your PPE needs to be in a system that also allows it to be effective because you don't want your PPE to be your only line of defense. So once we have these things in place, we felt confident. We, we did a dry run for about a week, and then we sent out the, the emails to the rest of our members. And um, people have been engaging it now for over a month. It seems that people are adhering. We, we have, uh, if, if not the same amount of traffic, we've probably increased slightly. And maybe there's a, a you know, I estimated about the last couple of weeks to be about 20% uptick in the amount of food scraps that we're taking. So it, it was important and essential to, to do this evaluation and our decision to stay open seems to be benefiting the community and ensuring there's some sort of normalcy in their, their daily routine. And, you know, so far so good, I could say. Yeah, good. I mean, <laughs> those are great tips and precautions and I like how you emphasize, you know, first the physical distancing, you know, and then. Yeah making sure that the mask and the personal protective equipment is effective because you've got those distances, you know, you're adhering to those minimal distances yeah. being apart. And I'll share with our listeners that 
uh, Michael and his team have put together an awesome under five minute video that we have posted on our website. We'll post it with this podcast page called COVID-19 Precautions, the Community Compost Depot at Fry Garden. So check that out. It visually shows everything he's, he's talking about. And, you know, the reaction in your community and the participation is really interesting. Do you think that that 20% uptick in, you know, that you're seeing is is either new people or because people are cooking at home and they have more food scraps? I'm guessing it's a combo. I have had a number of people call to join the program, but that happens on a weekly. I have people joining the program on a weekly basis. So. I'm not sure if there's been an uptick in the number of people joining yet. We'll we'll mm-hmm. look at that at a later date. But certainly, I know that people, um, members that are using the depot, you know, informally. When I I happen to see someone there, I ask, you know, is this is this helpful during this time? And over overwhelmingly, everyone has said that that this is was extremely helpful to to remain open. That they're doing a lot more cooking at home, and they're needing to drop off a lot more frequently. And I seem to notice. I think the food scraps look a lot fresher. <laughs> so I think people are compost. Uh, um, sorry, cooking more at home, and so they're engaging more with their compost bucket. And of course, then that increases the frequency. Uh, of drop-offs, but I do notice that the, it seems like a lot of, I would say, what, what I call fresh food scraps. Uh, yeah. You know, so um, I think it's a good thing. Good. Yep. Um, you know, you mentioned that, that that you're using the sanitizers, and I yeah. know we're getting so many inquiries from our network of community composters around the country about, you know, one of the reasons some of them are not operating, you know, whether it's they're collecting at curbside or through drop-off programs. Right. They cannot source sanitizing uh, supplies right. you know, to, to do the wipe down of surfaces and, and whatnot. Do you have, first of all, tell us what you're using as your, you know, disinfectant sanitizer. And, right. And then if you have any tips on, especially with your 30-year history in the chemical industry, any tips for where to, where to source these these um, supplies? Okay, so first I would say is we are in luck because the most effective sanitizer is still probably the most readily available, which is soap and water. If you can build some sort of water dispensing, gray water system, uh, you know, hand washing station into your your operation, that's excellent. That allows you also to clean your hands as well as sanitize. So soap acts as a cleaner and a sanitizer. So it'll take off the large chunks and you know slough off surface material as well as create the mycels that that encapsulate any sort of agent in into the soap uh, matrix. The next stage, of course, is sanitizing. So your sanitizing options are things like quaternium ammonium salts, which are mildly sanitizing. They wouldn't be your first, but they are utilized out there. Your most effective, or, or some of your most effective, are your alcohol, small molecule alcohol-based, which are isopropanol, which is 2-propanol, and it's also known as rubbing alcohol as a 70% solution. Ethanol is also sold, and they both need to be 70% or higher. Ethanol can be 60% and still be effective, but 70% is certainly the the sort of ballpark 
uh, figure for the alcohol solutions. And these act effectively in destroying the virus when used per direction. The challenge that we have right now, and it, this is across the board, it's not simply just for the, uh, the casual user, but also in the chemical industry. We're having difficulty procuring supplies such as 2-propanol, which is used in, in the rubbing alcohol sanitizers. What I would say, my recommendation is to continue to look online and the companies in which you can place orders, even if it says it's back ordered, at least if you can place an order and get in a queue, that, that's not a satisfactory answer, but unfortunately, the supply chain is really being strained. And I think the prioritization to the healthcare, to the, the frontline first responders is being instituted at uh, most retailers. Uh, now, if you go into box stores or if you go into, say, a pharmacy, uh, grocery stores, any place that has industrial supplies, such as janitorial supplies like Uline, U-L-I-N-E, or Granger, uh, you can find these items. It's hit or miss. It's disconcerting, I, I got to say, that, that, that this is the situation. Because certainly, there, it's not as if there's a lack of sanitizer. It's really the supply chain has been disrupted. And yeah. until that settles and there's uh, an adjustment, it's really going to be a hunting type of um you know, sort of approach where you'll have to call suppliers multiple times. If you if you have access, you know, to either your grocery store or your pharmacy, you can give them a call and ask when their deliveries are, and they'll let you know. Usually, they're from the conversations I've been having. They're usually about 3 a.m. <laughs> that the trucks come in. So of course, you're going to have to get somewhere very early in the morning to pick up your sanitizer if you can. I know that's not a satisfactory answer, and I did my best to research this as thoroughly as I could. But still, the, the, the supply chain is, there's uh, lots of pressure on that supply chain at the moment. Uh, so we all have to be patient with that process. In the meantime, yeah. soap and water all the way. Yeah, I was going to just, you know, emphasize your point about that soap as you said, is still in supply and yeah. super, super effective. And to your list of working with local pharmacies and grocery stores, we can add, you know, check in with your local hardware store, have a relationship yes. with them. They may be able to help as well. Support local independent businesses where you can. Um, right. So, Michael, I know, you know, you mentioned you're, you know, cleaning three times a day, and whatnot, you know, I should have asked you this at the beginning, but can you just describe, is it all volunteer based? Is it you doing all the work yourself? How, yeah. how is the depot managing the extra, you know, labor hours here that's required? Right, so it is mainly my effort, 99%. So in that sense, it's unique. I have full control. I also don't have, uh, say, the concern for volunteers that, I would be responsible for. I do have volunteers at times, and I will start bringing in volunteers again, but my situation, maybe it's unique, but I'm sure other compost areas might also want to evaluate running on a short staff 
And, you know, as an ambitious composter, I, I tend to want to do this all myself. And um, maybe that's a, certainly allowed me to make a seamless transition from the pre-COVID to post-COVID. But of course, it's, you know, an ever-developing situation. So I'm always evaluating whether I'm doing it correctly. But I have two um, young neighbors that um, they come over and they volunteer in the garden and help me with the compost depot. And my first concern was I wanted to make sure that uh, any of these operations that I might be asking them to do in the next few weeks that I have run through myself and have a visceral, you know, personal experiential understanding of these steps and the risk involved. So uh, there are some, there is some good news about, you know, the risk of running, say, either a drop-off site or also a composting site. And I know you ran through some of those in your webinars. Um, so I would definitely refer people to listen to those, building confidence in uh, responding and taking the necessary provisions to guard against this are important. But I, I would say that if you do follow it, you know, after you've done your, your, your homework and you develop a protocol and you're able to follow it, um, you should feel confident that any volunteers you have that you know that will follow the protocol to the letter and um, ensure compliance, that it, the, the risk will be low. It does still come down to a lot of the same things about ensuring that while you're in this active composting area that you know, let's say it's a risk area that you're not touching your face. The one way in which I actually reduce my risk is I always have a pair of gloves on. And I say that because once you put your pair of gloves on, something happens to your brain and you stop touching your face as much. You, you stop feeling like your hands are clean because there's something on them. And having the I guess the 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 right attire, you know, the, the the PPE, that's a signal to both yourself and people around you that, you know, this is a situation that, uh, you know, things need to be handled appropriately. And, you know, you can start to build your practice that way and, you know, ensure that, that you have the confidence to to either get up and running or feel confident that you'll continue to run without imparting a risk into yourself or a volunteer. Yeah, that that is great advice. Do you have any other top tips or lessons that you've learned that you would like to share with other community food scrap recyclers and composters? Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I started this as a community initiative back in about 2000, say 2011 for certain. We were doing some some work before that, but once we defined this as a community initiative, you know, we, we did a lot of trial and error. And some of the things that I learned over the years and that I think are really important to understand is that composting is nature's process. Uh, understanding the dynamic nature, it's critical for success. So we know that once when we start a compost pile, day one doesn't look like day three or day 10 or day 20. And so you're always dealing with an ever-changing situation. I think for 
any active composting site, they understand that and they understand that the material is dynamic. Anyone who's looking to initiate a composting operation at this time, you know, it's good for them to understand that they're working with a process that's nature's developed and understanding those right, those proper conditions and adhering to them is critical. And so with that, timing is everything. It's important for your daily routine, your yearly schedule, your scheduling for volunteers. And we have engineered, or, or I would say humans use nature's natural degradation process um, to do what we call composting. So that's an engineered system. And so as an engineer, when we engineer a process, we create conditions and parameters so that we have control of that process. So th those are important things to remember and the nature's process, the timing and control of, of the situation. Anything else is just, it becomes your own personal, you know, customization of the process. And that might be how you engage with the community, if it's a much larger volunteer group, or if it's a small one person operation. It can be managed in different ways. It can be a small uh, select group of people, or it can be a large group of volunteers that might funnel through and only understand a small part of the process. But as long as there is a, a core group that has a, gr a good grasp of the situation, how to manage the materials, it's amazing how much you actually can compost in any one you know, uh, place. And th those are some of the things that I've found that um, you know, sort of continue to drive me to uh, be confident that I'm doing the right thing and also to ensure that I'm on top of things during the process. Well, well thank you for doing it and thank you for being a model for other community compost drop-off sites around the country. I think we have a lot to learn from each other. We will put links to the video and uh, Michael's website, and which includes lots of great photos on the podcast uh, uh, homepage for this uh, podcast so check those out and you mentioned how you know composting itself is an ever-evolving changing process and system and as That's the right. pandemic COVID-19 is also clearly an evolving situation day to day and as we have more resources on how to source PPE supplies and, and um, disinfectants we'll, we'll add those too so check them out Michael thank you for joining us today we look forward to uh, following your progress and success as you grow, grow the operations there in Rhode Island Great. Thanks for your time, Brenda. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Composting for Community podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This episode is produced by myself and Virginia Streeter. We'll be back again next month with a new episode. Our theme music is I Don't Know from Grapes. Be sure to check out the rest of the ILSR podcast family, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and Community Broadband Bits at ILSR.org.